everybody. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production, and our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on, and today uh, we're going to be talking about lower thirds. It's, it's, it will show a little bit, of, but mostly a discussion about it. We've looked at other people's lower thirds. We've talked about it in passing, but really just talk about how we approach that process, and we've got a great panel here to talk about it. So stay tuned for that for the second hour, and if you've got questions about lower thirds, go ahead and start throwing them into Makana right now, um, or just go ahead and throw general questions in. Um, and if you aren't in Makana, uh, if you're just watching this on YouTube 24-7, you can ask a question right here at askofficehours.com. Um, and so, or just use that little QR code. And so you can just throw those questions in there and, um, and we will file them into the system as we go. So um, so go ahead and use that. And again, you can use that any time of the day. You don't have to wait for the show to start, and we'll get it into the next day's show. All right, let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. First question in from John Nichols in Concord, California. I'm testing Zoom events, checking out Guy's tip to get 1080p video. I'd like to connect my Zoom ISO setup to the event. On the Zoom ISO system, I can connect to the event, but at the host, I can't change the rights to allow recording. Any suggestions? Good, Guy. Yeah, just a little background on this. At Zoomtopia in the backstage uh, tour, uh, we had uh, Sam uh, let us know that to get 1080p with anybody, you can now use Zoom Sessions, which is $99 a month, which is pretty cool. So now anybody can get not only 1080, but it'll dish out a 720 and a 360 all at the same time. And you could even use second camera input and even have a second 1080p. So you could be sending up quite a bit of data. Now to answer this question, I had to actually come in a little early here and try to mimic what he was, what John was doing. And he's right. When you try to just join uh, with Zoom ISO, it just won't let you into the meeting. So what I did was in the Zoom event, I went ahead and added, I have a secondary account and I added it as, as a speaker. So I then uh, in the events page so that you add you add your, your person as a speaker and then uh, log into the Zoom ISO machine uh, with Google Chrome uh, SSO. And you'll see in, um, in Zoom ISO, you'll have this new little Zoom events login when you're, when, once you've logged in via SSO on Chrome. And now when you click on that, you can get into the meeting and you may get this little, uh, warning that says you do not have live streaming permission. Zoom ISO is set to live stream for capture mode. And when you say request permission on the other machine, uh, whoever the host is has to grant you, uh, recording permissions or live streaming permissions. And once they do that, then your outputs will light up and then you can go ahead and select your people and, you know, push them out via NDI or SDI or whatever you want to do. So. That's how you do that. Yeah, and, and I have to admit that when we've done Zoom events and we've done a couple of these, um, we still do the old fashioned. We don't try to pull anyone out of events. <laughs> we we build meetings and we and we use Zoom ISO to build the show that we're going to put into Zoom events. I know it's kind of sidelining the way Zoom events is designed to work, but we found that it was still a better show. So um, so that you know by just simply uh, using Zoom events as the what we use it for is mostly the ticketing and the you know let people you know do the, do the other things that they that the client wanted to do. Uh, it was more of a client request than than our suggestion to use it. And so we, um, and we found that that worked great. You know, so if you have trouble with it or if you're having trouble with the linkages, just remember that you can use any old meeting and then you just have the output of your production be, a, be the speaker. And then you just put it in there. And, and then what we do is we just lock onto that and that's the rest of the show. I know that's not really using it the way it was intended, um, but it, uh, if, if you're having any trouble, it works well. Uh, next question. 
Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, what kind of video audio source would you use to test the quality and sync of various capture cards? Thanks. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I found this little video on uh, on YouTube by DJO, which uh, is a good sync tester. So it, it does this little thing with the bouncing ball, and you hear a little tick every time that ball hits uh uh, every second and the little red thing comes on when the ball hits and so if you just record a little bit of this you can tell how many tenths of a second off uh, the sound is uh, from where the video is uh, and for testing compression I use this uh, which is uh, basically <clears throat> nine different HD videos playing first person shooters at the same time so there's Almost no pixels that remain the same from scene to scene, so it will break down compression fairly quickly, as you can see, which is happening here in Zoom. On my screen, all of those screens are going at 30 frames per second, but uh, Zoom is kind of choking on trying to encode all of those pixels that are changing from frame to frame. Yeah, and then there's you know there's kind of the uh, a lot there's a lot of those different frame sync um, th things that are there. One of the things that we like to do in a low cost solution are gradients. So lots of gradients, gradients across colors, gradients across black and white, uh, gradients that interact with each other. Uh, those are the things where you start to see things start to fall apart. For true um, uh, true testing, when we're when it's industrial, like we need it to work. Um, sync we 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 sort out sync with a with a piece of hardware called a matchbox. Um, so uh, Hitomi makes a matchbox, and that's going to calculate your your sync. Um, it, it, it it used to be called validate before the be you know it was it was something that was used in a lot of satellite trucks, and then that team uh, rebuilt itself as Hitomi, and they they started building matchbox, and it'll do I think sixteen channels of sync if you're doing that kind of thing, um, and uh, and then for truly validating a card, uh, we use the SRI uh, test signals. So um, you know so the Sarnoff signals are the way that you really run it into a card and tell to tell exactly what the card is doing. Uh, I think that what Courtney showed is totally valid as far as figuring those those bits and pieces out. If you have the money <laughs> to do it, to, to use those two pieces, those are the ways that you can absolutely validate the cards. Next question. From Paul Buchan in Columbus, Ohio, does anyone have any experience with the wireless video devices from Wave Central? Has anyone seen these? Wave Central? These are... I have to admit, are these are these uh, HDMI? These, huh? Yeah, these are these are new to me. Um, I mean, they, they look like they're being used in facilities. And they're in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It'd be interesting that we, we should, oh, they're Axis. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just didn't, I didn't notice the, the overall, the Axis uh, transmitters are good. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I just didn't know the brand. I didn't know who owned them, <laughs> but we see Axis transmitters at events all the time. Yeah. They're, they're strong. They're strong transmitters. Um, I just didn't, I just didn't recognize the, the host uh, um, company, but you see there's a lot of um, sporting events. So there's a, there's a handful of these kind of industrial grade ones. Um, so yeah, I, would, I, I haven't used them personally, but I've definitely seen them in, in the productions that we're working in. Next question. From Rizal F. Harati in Tempe, Arizona, what do you think of Elgato's new $279.99 prompter? It comes with a monitor. I go with Jeffrey. It's a pretty decent 
looking desktop monitor um and uh, but it there of course there's going to be some small little caveats to it the one of them is you're going to need to have the elgato face cam i don't see uh, it looks very specific for the face cam uh, camera and uh, trying to put something else like a, like a 360 link into that it's not going to happen there. It'll attach to your uh, monitor, it'll attach to your table, uh, but it's rather small. It's just, it looks like the size of an iPhone, uh, so it you need to have it up close and personal, but you'll be able to uh, bring in a, a, a script, you'll be able to bring in a Zoom, so you can do face-to-face -face connection from there. Uh, but still, what I'd normally do is when I when I set up my teleprompter, I have a little bit bigger one. Um, I use uh, Duet to bring in the monitor, and then I use a program on my Mac called Better Display, which allows me to do a picture-in-picture -picture and then flip the picture-in-picture -picture so I can put it right on the teleprompter. Then I can use a tablet. I got an Android tablet in my teleprompter, which is like $156 on Amazon, and then I can uh, I can switch back and forth to it. I, I think that's the better option but because it's a little bit farther away uh, rather than right up at your face. But if, if you've got it, uh, a containing desk with that and you're just doing simple uh, simple live streams, simple uh, uh, Zoom sessions, it's, it's going to be a great addition to your uh, setup. Good, Bill. Yeah, I, I looked at it and I saw the price and then I did the same thing that uh, – that Chris was just doing, which is taking a look at it kind of in situ. And you can see it's right on the top of the main monitor there. It's pretty small. Uh, it would be good for a Zoom kind of setup, I think. You should be able to read enough and, and maybe even fold back your uh, your eyeline monitor into that little thing. I don't know what it, it allows you in terms of inputs and hookups on the back of it. Uh, it's it's a nice looking little design, but at $279, it, it seemed like it was a little bit pricey for what you're getting there. Basically, camera, a little tiny dedicated screen, and then the mirror unit. It looks nice, so it'll probably work just fine, but it seems a little bit dear to me for what they're giving you. Go, Jason. Actually, you don't get the camera with it, and uh, oh. it does have it does have step up rings. Um, I'm trying to picture my 24 to 70, so it does technically have a step up ring to 82 millimeters. But like anytime you put a normal lens in there, like it's just going to smack right into the glass. Uh, the other thing that gets me is 600 vertical lines. So you know that the video that they have showing has all sorts of like, oh, you can put this up there and that up there. And it's like you have 600 vertical lines. That's DVD, you know, and a quarter. Like uh, not much to go on there. So for text, great. Other than that, yeah, I don't know. Good, Courtney. Yeah, 800 by 600. It looks like about a 7-inch uh, LCD monitor on there, um, which is usually 8 by 6. Uh, the strange thing, I looked at this picture and I went, well, wait, wait a minute, you shouldn't be able to see that camera if there's glass, uh, reflective glass in there and it's completely blacked out behind it. So I think uh, whoever prepared that picture just did that for illustration purposes. You shouldn't be able to see the camera reflected I mean, through that reflective glass. So let's hope the glass is a little more reflective than it's depicted in its uh, in its photo photography. It doesn't seem to also have the ability to adjust the height very well um, from the side. Um, 
Well, let's see. Well, maybe it is adjustable. The little platform is adjustable in the back, and that's important. Depending upon the size of the lens that you're going to be using, what kind of camera you're going to be using, because sometimes the lenses are up about four or three, three or four inches from their base plate. So you need to be able to lower the camera down sometimes below the level of the monitor, the base plate of the camera below the level of the monitor in some situation. Hey, good guy. Yeah, I'm glad to see that Elgato's recognizing this and just bringing more awareness out to the market. And 9-inch is a pretty good-sized screen. Um, we have a similar device that's a 10-inch, and you know our magical banana here is about 7.5 inches. So if my head's this big, it's you know bigger than my head in real life. So if you're filling the frame of a, of a person, it's pretty cool. So I think, I think they're going to do well with this. Um, I do wish that the resolution was a little bit bigger at 1024. Uh, let me cut to that screen. So it's 1024 by 600 pixels in a 9-inch display. And yeah, you can add your DSLR with those uh, step-up rings, as was alluded. But it's 279, and if you use their camera, you're adding in another couple hundred bucks. You're in it like you know, 600 bucks before you even really get going for that price. On I'd also be looking at the ICANN. I mean, Alex, what do you think of those ICANN 12 inches that uh, we sold you a bunch of? Yeah, I, I have a, you know, maybe to get you a bunch of them here. Thank you. Uh, the, um, uh, I actually think this is a, this could be better than the ICANN for what we were using it for. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, for us, this is a much more compact system. Part of the thing, I have an ICANN sitting back here and I keep on meaning to put it up here, but I'm like, oh, it's all this stuff I got to pull around and do the thing and move this stuff in and out. And, and so I, I've been putting it off because it's a little bit of an art project to put together. And this isn't, you know, this is not an art project. This is a, and it, with that, with the step up rings. And so at first, when we first started talking about it, by the time, by the beginning of this question, um, five minutes ago, I was like, uh, this is just going to be that web camera. By the end of this, I'm like, uh, I got to see if I have money to buy one to try it out because, because I think that having a nice little compact one is, is good. The problem really that I have right now with, with all of these is that what I want to see in my teleprompter is really the whole gallery, you know, and so something really small, it gets to be a really small gallery. So I kind of want a much bigger uh, prompter. And so the, um, and so I want to be able to see everybody there rather than, and then the other issue you have with that is that um, uh, the problem is the Zoom meeting, the the controls at the bottom are broken. I mean, in, in my opinion, <laughs> I can't, I can't put the gallery on the other window because that's what I want is to drag the other window in there. I don't want that. I want that to be the gallery. Um, and I can't do that. So, um, so anyway, so that's the, that's the challenge that we have with that. But I, I, I am interested in it. I think for the kits that, that we build, the Elgato would be a much simpler thing for me to send out to somebody, you know, with either a webcam or with a, um, you know, if I'm going to send something to somebody, this is the thing that I would want to send them, you know, and this is, it's much closer to the design that some of us have been ta have been working on, which is that you just kind of embed everything into it. Ours is even more committed because it's like the webcam is built into it. Um, this one's a little bit more flexible than that, but it's a lot easier to set up. I, I could definitely see us using it. I'm going to probably get one to test it. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I use the small ICANN, uh, it's called the Home Stream. And uh, it is small. It's only about seven inches. But I use it only as an Ateratron so I can get, make eye contact. But the thing it does do that I think two things, actually, is it has a trapezoidal screen so I can read it much easier, see it much easier. It doesn't get cut off. And the other part is it screws on the front of the uh, DSLR camera very much like a matte box would. So those two things work well. It's a little, you know, clunky, but yeah. um, I find it useful. I do, I do love the fact that we're in a arms race about tel teleprompters. Like, you know, like it's, 
there was a there was a long dry time when it was not that way. You know, like where teleprompters weren't that big of a deal, and a lot of you know because I've been doing Interatron for fifteen years now, or over fifteen years, and um, and that's primarily what I use teleprompters for. I don't really do that much, um, pro you know, the the with the text, but but the um, but it was always like it was. You know, I mean, there was just a handful of, you know, I mean, obviously the ones that we had, I've, I think I've probably owned 15 of the prompter people, you know, teleprompters, um, you know, and so those are the ones that we've used in the past. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Can't hear you. Yeah, I was thinking um, uh, that it might be good for Steadicam work, but then uh, uh, because it's so small and light, if it had a means of attaching it, like uh, Mitch said, to the front of the mat box, but it, this is really designed more for YouTubers with their own small cameras. But if you got rid of this thing here, and if it slides off the bottom and you had some means of attaching it to either a base plate rods, uh, you know, mat box rods onto a Steadicam, it'd make a good lightweight uh, teleprompter for a Steadicam. Yeah, I, we we have used ones on, on Steadicams before, you know, these little, like the mat box ones. Um, I think that prompter people used, to, I don't know if they still make that one, but they used to have one that would attach to the lens. And, um, and I, uh, we just found that it was so difficult to deal with related to being attached to the lens when we're actually in production as Mitch uses it. I think it works perfectly because he doesn't change very much. But as we were shooting in the field and putting it on the end of that thing, we were like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, it's a <laughs> it was, pain when you have to change lenses if you're using primes on a steady cam. You know, yeah, as soon as we started buying bigger teleprompters, we were like, oh, okay, this is, this is a better situation. Um, next question. Added from Shaitan Flo, from Yurtsvold, from Tromso. Sometime, I unfortunately have to work in Windows. The lack of tabs in File Explorer Finder drives me insane. Any third-party plugins or add-ons the panel would recommend? Serge? For these kind of uh, small tweak to the Windows uh, operating system, I use a company called Stardocs. They have a plugin for that. It's called Groupie. Uh, it seems to do exactly what you want. Oh, I'm sorry. It's... Uh, a little bit blurrier because of my system. But Stardock, will, you will have a plugin that will do what you want. And also Windows 11 might be able to help you with that. But I don't know if you're planning to do the Windows 11 soon or not. Jeffrey? Yeah, it sounds like you're in pre-Windows 11 systems because Windows 11 does have tabs. And uh, and they they work really well. I've I've got uh, several tabbed folders, along with tabbed Chrome and tabbed Firefox. So I have tons of tabs sitting in on my Windows. So yeah, if you're not on Windows 11, and there's a reason, no reason why you go up to Windows 11, you should probably make the jump. Good, Jason. Yeah, it's in Windows 11. Uh, I really don't like Windows 11. I'm sorry. I hate the way the Microsoft builds. But um, yeah, it is part of the OS. Go ahead, Gordon. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I can show you the, here are the tabs in the file explorer. So you can just uh, go from tab to tab, whatever you need, uh, as many tabs as you like. It's all in Windows 11, and it's a free upgrade to any version of Windows back to 7. Wow, free. Uh, next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul wants to know, how would you hook up an X-Real Air to a projector so other folks could see what you're seeing and what projector would be the best bang for the buck? Small, low-cost, yet good 201-inch picture? Go ahead, Bill. Well, Guy will talk about a, about the connection, I'm sure. But the thing that I said, when I, a 201-inch diagonal picture is a pretty largely blown-up picture. And just remember that often the way that you do that with the projector is move the projector back. But that 
follows the inverse square principle. So you lose a lot of light as you move the projector away from the surface to get the picture bigger. So if you're going to really want to use this in a, a conference room kind of area, make sure that you have some sort of control over the lighting around it, or you're going to wash out really quickly. So Guy can talk about the actual connections to that because he has one of the... 200 inches is really big. Yeah, that's what it's, really it's going to be really dim unless yeah. something's going on. Yeah, unless yeah. you got a 4,000 ANSI lumen projector. I mean, well, you can now get, I just saw, I just got a thing because I was looking at projectors. And so, of course, you get these emails now every day from Amazon yeah. going, hey, here's another projector. What do you think of this projector? What do you think of this projector? <laughs> One that, that I just saw, it's effective because then I, I, I found myself on Amazon looking at, Epson has like a little portable one that's like $300. It's like this big and it's 3,000 lumens. <laughs> it's wow. Like it's, you know, it's, so it's changed a lot, you know, as far as what those, those things can do. I have a huge Benco, um, a BenQ that, that, I, that I've put in my house um, temporarily just because I wanted to see what it would be like to watch things on a big screen instead of, because uh, I'm trying to figure out whether I want a screen or whether I want to keep on using TVs. And um, anyway, it was, that one was like, $2,000 and not as bright as this one. Yeah, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Unfortunately, after watching a bunch of reviews uh, on the X-Reel of how people show what you're viewing through these, I don't think that there's a way that you can show others very well. I mean, you can take a, a nice quality DSLR and shoot into these goggles and, and uh, show others, but it doesn't have a way of just uh, native. Well, and it's just receiving video. I mean, you could just split it, right? I mean, you could just split the segment. Well, yeah, but it's not going to show you like, I think what he's talking about is the Nebula app, which lets you have three screens and you pin them in space and he wants to show them what he's seeing. But if it was just a connection, yeah, if you were just HDMI, then you could just split an HDMI connection. But right. I think what he's talking about is viewing, pinning stuff in, in, in this virtual space, but I don't think you can do that. So, Got it, Courtney? Yeah, since it doesn't have cameras built into it, uh, you're seeing through the glass, right? So you would have to, you could take a webcam or something that has a close focus on it and stick it behind one of the eyepieces to show you what you're what you're saying, of course it wouldn't be stereo, but I don't even know if it does three dimensional stereo. It know. does. It so does. the Nebula app. You must have gotten yours, Alex. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I got it working. Um, it turns out, by the way, that cable is really important. Like it, it will not work well without the cable that comes with the the glasses. So I've, I've, I'm marking that very carefully. I don't know why. It, it looks like a USB C cable, but. Um, every other cable, it blinks out all the time, you know, and so it, it's, it'll play for a second and then stop and then play for a second and stop. But if you use the cable that it came with, um, which I'm already getting ready to buy a second one just to make sure I have it, um, it works exceptionally well. I, I watched all of, um, uh, um, I watched all of Mission, the last Mission Impossible, um, just laying, laying, laying on my bed on su and Sunday, just looking up and watching, watching it as if there was a screen. I mean, I, I did find... The, the little thing that Guy had showed that I couldn't find in, in a previous episode here was that the, the little cap that goes on the front of the lenses um, was just hidden in the box, at least when I got it. I just didn't open the box enough to find it, so it's there. And um, it's a pretty great experience, especially with I have, you know, the Air Ma uh, iPod Maxes on and that, and I was kind of embedded, you know, for, for a couple hours. It was, it was awesome. Like, I... It is definitely going to be something I travel with. I mean, I can see myself just watching movies in the plane. I mean, just because I, I tend to just disengage when I get on the plane, and this is just going to be another. I usually have eye patches over. Now I can sit there and watch movies. It's great. Go ahead, guy. 
Yeah, as far as projectors go, the big hit at CES was these newfangled projectors that uh, are shaped more like this, where they you could put them down uh, below the wall and then they shoot, they fire up. Uh, this one's rather expensive, but there there are other models that I've seen some people on LinkedIn posting up. But yeah, this is the new in thing is not to have it be mounted up near the ceiling, but to put it near the wall. And there's a bunch of manufacturers coming out with these I different have, types of projectors that I are low a, firing. I have such a hard time being okay with that. Like I, I, they've been around for a long time, and every time I see them, they look good. But I feel like you're stretching an image a lot <laughs> you know, like and I just I can't get over that like I can't get over the idea that it's just like this crazy you know like stretch you're just stretching an image up the thing and I I haven't like until I see a resolution chart with that I, I have a hard time getting my getting over that hill um with the low fire ones they look good and, and I, I get it I just again that's been that's been my that's been my sticking point there with that um yeah go ahead Chris I will remind you, Alex, that we watched VHS for 30 years and everybody was fine with it. So it's probably I wasn't fine okay. With it. It's probably okay <laughs> for the vast majority of people. I also want to say about these little glasses things, I just want to remind everybody watching, you do not have to buy everything we that Alex buys. Okay? Just it wasn't say, me, you know, it was Guy. Guy your, started this lock mess. Up your credit. Yeah, but then you followed him and now and by the way, that Elgato prompter even comes with teleprompter software. Yeah, but it looks it doesn't look very good. It, yeah, it, it doesn't looks look like very good, but for somebody who doesn't like, have anything for two hundred seventy nine dollars or whatever, you get more sure. stuff. I mean there's there's so many good software. Can we go there's back so to the top th- of the sh- top of the show? There's so many th- other things I want to add to all these questions. Sorry, say that again. <laughs> Can we just go to the top of the show? I want to. I want to mulligan. I want to redo some of these questions again. <laughs> Good, Courtney. Yeah. Uh, to get slightly off topic again, the short throw projectors, which was brought up by Guy and, and commented on by Alex, <laughs> is that uh, you know they can compensate for the keystoning by mounting the uh, uh, panel that is in the projector panel at a 45 degree angle or, or a slight angle so that they don't have to digitally stretch it that much. It's just yeah. stretched by the optics. I and, understand. Uh, just... And it doesn't doesn't degrade your image quality that much. You know. I have a heart- that much. I think that's the, that's the big thing, that much. Well, um, it's, I, it's the same optics as a straight-on projector, just um, an angle. No, I, I think that the thing that I'm really interested in is how it relates to chromatic aberration. So chromatic aberration is when you start stretching optically like that, chromatic aberration becomes an issue. And so that is, that, that is the color um, fringing that may occur. We used to add it back in for film. Um, and so then... That's a kind of a red pill problem. Like as soon as you add chromatic aberration into your shots, you get stuck with. You can see it everywhere all the time. Um, using next, those plastic lenses, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, quick reminder: of course, you can ask questions throughout the hour. Um, and so the uh, so if you've got a question, go ahead and throw it into Makana. If you're not in Makana, you can use this little QR code over here. Um, this is askofficehours.com. You can just put that. You can just save that URL. You can ask questions when it comes up. Like I don't understand this. Any time of the day, you can throw it in there, and then we'll that it, it, we file those into the system the next day. So, so feel free to ask those questions. I mean, if you do it right now, we'll put them in right now. But if you put them in later, we'll put them in the next day. Next question from John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. A follow up to the VMix Twenty Seven Zoom integration. I tried it yesterday. The login is somewhat slow, but the results are promising. It had reasonable latency, good stability, and after login, it's easy to use. Good guy. 
Yeah, I still haven't jumped into vMix 27 and used it, but I have friends that are doing it, so I'll give you some of their comments. But I have used um, Wirecast now, Mimbalive with these integrations, and it seems to be pretty pretty basic. It's like the same code behind the scenes. So all three of these that were announced at NAB last year are now all working it out, out in the wild. So the problem with the vMix integration specifically, it's in beta. So the other two are gold. They're, they're shipping. vMix 27 is beta, so be careful using it on a production because the byte that happened up until last week was that you couldn't really uh, control the buses independently. So now they've already, there's a vMix 27, uh, whatever the next uh, dot release is out. So if you've already downloaded it when it was first announced, you'll want to download the newest beta and now you'll get integration where you can uh, route those buses and bring the, the, the levels up for each individual person, which is a, a big deal. Uh, that's why, I'm, Alex, that's why you used to have those rooms, right? So you could isolate each person and ride the levels and isolate each feed. So uh, well, if you it's are mostly using so we can talk back to people, which I still don't know if we can do with vMix. Um, I mean, for us, that's the big thing is being able to talk back. We can, because with Zoom ISO, of course, we can ride everybody's levels now. I mean, we did build it originally for that, but but the Zoom ISO will allow us to do that. But the the thing that is now still the kind of the, what we're waiting for is the ability to talk back to each person individually, you know, which right now what we have to do is do what we do in the show, which is use something like Unity um, to, to do it on the back end. Um, so, and I don't think vMix has fixed that problem i think yeah. that that's what it that's what it'll do is it'll r allow you to route the bus back to them so that you're you're giving them a mix minus of the show minus themselves but i'll have to double check and confer with, well, them, with the boys and see yeah that should that should be done the question is is can you send them beyond mix Just minus god mic can you not a god mic but a, an individual mic to each person so there's if there's six people in or four people in there can i talk to you you know, like and tell you that your mic is a little off or whatever. That's why we have all those computers so that, and, and we've had issues where we had somebody, their, their computer was falling apart and we're like, hey, we're going we're gonna to restart your computer. Then we go to the host and go, don't go to this person until we're done, until we tell you to. Then we go back to that person. Okay, we're going to restart your computer. We restarted it, brought it back, brought them back in and then went back to the host. Now you can go back to him. And all that was done in the back end without anybody, you know, without any, I mean, it was all done in, in about 90 seconds. We fixed it all, and it was during a live show with 40,000 people watching. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, like it's, you know, and, and so that's why we, on higher-end events, we really want to be able to talk to people. <laughs> you know, it's a, I mean, comms, there's, comms is half the show, you know. So, um, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, has a question. Looking at the substantial system on the Live Production Mastery YouTube channel, it's odd that Zoom ISO is not used. Are individual Zoom sources, Zoom Drone, more reliable than Zoom ISO? I'll go ahead, Jeffrey. You know, the funny thing is you just technically answered that this question with the last question. I, I found that funny. Uh, so what Brandon is doing is he's creating a Zoom room uh, and being able to control the Zoom room. So these Zoom drones are part of the Zoom room. And Zoom ISO, uh, at one time, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't even use Zoom ISO in rooms uh, properly. So uh, that's, and, and of course, it, it's also about how he has built something. And when you start to build something, and change starts to happen. Uh, you, you don't normally just go to the next thing. You, 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 have, you have to take some time to really research it and make sure that it's going to work because if you want to know a production environment, the last thing you want to do is failure. But I do like the idea that Alex just said, and that is you can take somebody out of a conversation and, uh, and talk to them 
and give them, uh, ask them to change their audio or, or, or shift around or something like that. Yeah, and, and, and what I will say is that it took us a long time too because we have that pipeline that we needed. We are in the process of getting ready to switch over to Zoom ISO, you know, like the, from own I know's perspective. So like, it, and the, pro, the reason that we're going to figure this out even though Zoom hasn't solved the pro- the main reason that we hung out with, the reason we hung on to the, the individual Zoom rooms, which is what we have, we have a whole bunch of monitors that go all the way around one room, is because we couldn't do that talk back. Um, and we're going to figure out other ways to do that with whether it's Unity or Clearcom or other things. And the reason that we're doing that is because when you do the Zoom room solution, you are doubling the latency, and I'm afraid that I can just hear it. I can hear the latency, I can hear the delay between people talking, and I can't take it any longer. So, so I, you know, so the you know the the advantage of Zoom Zoom ISO is that we're in a room at at low latency, um, and uh, the um, and that shows up on the show that we can bat- banter more effectively because of that. In fact, the, the direction that we're going to try to go next year as we move forward is I'd rather have low resolution. Like I want a low, like this ultra low latency, don't worry about whether it breaks up a little bit, blah, 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 between the panelists, you know, here. And like cut my latency in half. It can be 640 by 360 or 720 or whatever. And then send a, a higher latency SRT back to us and let us do it so that we can get that. Because it, it, it feels different. It just feels different when everyone when everyone can interact. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. That's a really good point about the latency. Because uh, I've been noticing in <clears throat> other casual Zoom meetings, like our our Zoom space room that we hang out in a lot, um, that quite often we're talking over each other, and I think that we've become very accustomed in this meeting in this room. Um, there is a protocol, you know, you don't speak till you're spoken to. Very seldom do we talk over each other or cut each other off. I, I'm the worst at it probably. Uh, but um, when you don't have that, that latency can be quite uh, uh, painful. Also, I'd like to say about uh, Brandon, uh, live production mastery, this is an interesting problem because he has a technique that he has built up. And he's built up the idea of he starts a Zoom room, and he uses his Zoom drones just to have a place where he can pin people. He's not doing individual meetings for each one of those people and merging them into a master uh, cut, a line cut. Brandon so we tend does to call that. a pin farm. A pin farm, yeah. So, so he's using Zoom farms, uh, Zoom drones, and a pin farm. Yes, of course. Uh, so the problem is, is that Brandon has become accustomed to this workflow and he's comfortable with it he maybe we don't even know if he's tested zoom iso maybe he hasn't maybe he hasn't gotten into it and i think that it's important for all of us to know that uh, uh, a workshop or a, a a community like this is super powerful because i've learned uh, an un uh, innumerable amounts of things from guys, from people like Guy or, you know, um, Grant and stuff. And so we have different people that are workshopping ideas and bringing it to the community. And it gives us the, uh, the freedom to lean on their research and to, to take it forward. And I just think anytime you find yourself, anytime you find yourself going, well, I just like doing it this way. You really need to check yourself because this industry moves so fast. 
in, in a matter of no time at all, your old iPhone 6 is going to be a, a, an antiquated paperwork, uh, paperweight. I love that table. Uh, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, this is a great video, and I'm glad to see Brandon helping people out by showing his behind the scenes and letting people know why. But it is a comfort factor. I've been watching some of Brandon's videos before he even started this channel, and he's had these pinning farms for years, and Chris is right. It's absolutely a comfort thing where he knows that an HDMI output fed into a decimator and into his constellation works 100% of the time. You do pick up that screen debris, and if you have to zoom in uh, using a DVE to obscure or, or just you know go to 105% or something, now you could be clipping off somebody's head. And if it's uh, already a 720p signal or 360, you're just blowing up bad pixels anyway. And I know that he knows he has a, a, a zoom ISO rig with the Sonnet box. Uh, in this video or one of the other ones, he's, he mentions that he had to use it for something else, so he couldn't use zoom ISO. So... He does have the stuff. It's just, you know, it's just money. You know, it's just one of those things where can you have two of those sonnet boxes? But I believe he needed to route the outs to somewhere else. So he had to utilize that sonnet box for another piece in his in his puzzle. But yeah, you do lose, I think, even some color fidelity. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, it's the 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 zoom ISO image. I, I think the I think the frame rate and the color is better. Like it's it's so zoom ISO definitely delivers a better signal than than screen scraping hundred percent and you're not getting degree and you're getting you know and it's you know so um it, it's a it's definitely a better signal like it it is again we held out for a while with um, what we were doing and I just couldn't you know I, I just couldn't justify it anymore so we're moving to zoom ISO to do those things so it's we may do one more show just because we haven't done the conversion but um you know with it but I think that after that we're moving to and by next year will be all zoom iso and we're just going to have to figure out how to do comps <laughs> like and so what we realize for a lot of the shows that 090 does anyway the only person we really need to talk to is the is the host you know the to, to talk to them so we can and we can go through the trouble of giving them a unity or or clear com output you know to to tie in and now that uh yeah so the, so those are the two things that we're looking at there yeah go jeffrey and one last thing, Andy Carluccio just said in the chat that uh, Brandon uses more than just Zoom. He'll bring in a Teams uh, a Teams call. He'll bring in a uh, uh, Google Meet call. So, and of course, Zoom ISO is not part. You can't do run Zoom ISO on those types of situations. Well, yeah, but you can also deliver those. Um, we do, we, we, we've done a fair bit of those as well. When you deal with government agencies or, or other things like this, we've had multiple like large corporations, government agencies, so on and so forth. Um, you, they, some can only use teams and some can only use meet and some can only, you know, they're, they're like, this is all we have in the company. So you can use the zoom ISO to grab the feeds that you have there. Now what you, what it doesn't do, what you have to figure out is how you're going to deliver those people to that, to that discussion. Um, but there's ways to deliver that back into the general mix as well. It does put teams and other things on a slightly lower rung than in quality than zoom ISO, but that's going to happen because it's not going to be 1080p. Next question. Randy Boyd from Thunder Bay, Canada, looking to get a monoprice Blackbird 4K 8x8 HDMI matrix switch, but noticed complaints about long startup times and high latency when switching. Have any of the panelists had any experience with the switch, or would you suggest something else? Go ahead, Courtney. 
I haven't had any experience with a switch. I took a look at it, and one of the problems with HDMI matrix switching is this is HDCP 2.3 compliant. And in order to be HDCP, which is the High Definition Content Protection, insisted upon by the MPTP, it has to negotiate every time you change the connections to see if your output device is HDCP compliant or it could be a recorder, in which case it has to mute the video and audio. So um, that's, it has to, when you turn it on and it has to pull all the inputs and all the outputs and build a huge table of uh, EDID table for every input and every output to see whether there's uh, content, protected content coming in or, you know, and what it's going out to. And then if you change anything, it has to rebuild that table. So it tries to manage the uh, EDIDs and HDCP uh, compliance, but it's going to take a few seconds every time you switch to make sure for each input to shake with the output that you've connected it to. So it can't clean switch very easily. So if you want a clean switch between inputs and outputs, uh, get an SDI, you know, convert everything to SDI and get you an SDI hub. It's not a switcher. <laughs> so, so it's, I own one. So I own one that's sitting right in front of me here. I use it. So it, it supplies a bunch of my monitors. I don't have the expectation that it's going to, it stays up all the time. I don't have the expectation of restarting it all the time. Number one, number two, I don't, I don't know how long it takes because I turn it on and then I go do something else and I come back and I start to work on it. Um, number two is when I switch it, if it takes, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that it takes more than a second for it to make that change. Um, when I, when I, that's my experience of it is it takes a second or less to move it, but it's definitely not a clean switch. And to Courtney's point, that's not what, you know, and you, not only would you not get that with a router, you'd have to get a clean router. So the clean, clean switch router from like Blackmagic has one. Um, so that's what you would need to be able to do that clean switch or just get a switcher. Like when I switch a lot of things now, I have a switcher here and I just tap that I want to see something else. So um, if, if you're looking for that, then this isn't what you're looking for. If you're looking for re rerouting things on an uh, occasional basis of reorienting re your layout for a different show or a different process and being able to have the flexibility of moving your monitors around without moving cables, it's a great piece of hardware. So, so it's just you just have to decide what you need it for. Next question. Next one in from Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. Instagram Live on an iPhone to an ATEM to StreamYard to LinkedIn Live. What's the best way to get the audio from the mobile device? Else, what's the best way to achieve this when you want to go uh, uh, Instagram Live to LinkedIn Live? Uh, go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. There is a lot going on there. That's that's pretty interesting. So my understanding from what you just said is you're, you're doing your Instagram Live, so you're bringing some sort of uh, ingest into Instagram Live. You're taking that video feed and then putting that into your ATEM. That's going out to StreamYard and LinkedIn. Uh, like I said, lots of working parts there. I, I would... Personally, I would probably take the Instagram Live and tr keep it separate from the iPhone going, and so you'd actually have two parts going into to StreamYard there. But uh, the audio from your iPhone, depending on what you're using, should it should be able to pull the video and it sh uh, the audio into the ATEM, so you can uh, then pull it out from there. Uh, once again, it really depends on your iPhone. If it's n if it's not doing that, then uh, getting something that can actually be uh, be docked so you can uh, get external audio through a cable uh, and then of course the HDMI that would help with that um, 
but yeah, it's just there's a lot of parts there that I'd also even start thinking about uh, routing audio through a mixer so I can control what the you know, the uh, Instagram Live audio is, is doing and it doesn't overpower the vocal uh, of whatever if you're talking over it. Yeah, the, my guess is that you're a third party on an Instagram Live that you're and you're trying to stream it to like you're, the, that phone is not interacting with it, and if it is. It's really complicated if you do it that way. Um, and so if you, I would interact with the person if you're doing like a, a two-person thing on another phone and have this be just capturing the the, the output of Instagram Live. The, um, uh, I think that, I don't know whether, I've never tried to do Instagram Live with a phone to, to a switcher, but it should, as Jeffrey said, should be embedded into that signal. If it's not, then what you need is a Bluetooth. You need a Bluetooth to something. JK Audio makes a lot of these different things. Bluetooth to eighth inch jack, Bluetooth to something else. But you know what I would use because I have it laying around as a Bluetooth to Dante, <laughs> and, then, and then Dante to you know get to a, like an Avio that would go back into my switcher um, to do that in bed, which is a way overkill. It's just what I have laying around in the office, and so. Um, but I think that what you need is a Bluetooth that's going to then output an eighth inch jack that you can then put into a into an ATEM. So um, because it's got a, the the phone has to see it as a headset. I think that if, if you're having trouble getting audio embedded, it means the phone's looking for a headset, and you need to give it one. And that'll be and you, since you're already using the output, you'll need to have a um, now. With the newest iPhone, you may be able to put that into a, a, a you may be able to with the newest one connect it um, to a hub, and then from that hub have a USB interface as well as a USB audio interface as well as the uh, video output. And I haven't tested that yet, but that that might be a valid solution. So that'd be the other way to look at it. I will recommend against the procedure. <laughs> so so um, you know so while you can do this. I would really be curious about why you want to do this. Um, you know, I, I, we're going to be streaming across a lot of platforms as a test for something else, and so we'll be. You'll see us doing this. We're going to wait until after the move. I was going to do it starting very soon, but we're going to wait until after our move before we start like turning up all the other platforms. Um, but you'll see us do the same stream to everyone. But I'd recommend generally not doing that, um, and because you really want to think about how you make everything customized for the platform that it belongs on. And I think that what you, what we put on Instagram is not the same stuff we would put on LinkedIn. And so so I, I, I just, I don't know if that's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I would do that. Next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. What gives LLMs a specific personality? I've noticed that Cloud can do better with business-related prompts, for example, than GPT 3.5. Go, Jason. Uh, the training data and the quality of the interactions that um, that the users give back to um, to to the LLM based on the training data. Code search. I know it's uh, part of ChatGPT, but I'm using Bing, and Bing has a within the Edge browser. There's a special place that you can like say what you want to compose an email compose a paragraph and you can have like a tone that you change and i find that to be very useful for business related emails next question from serge blondin in montreal canada any reel with the x reel and compare the video quality with the meta quest 2 you know i haven't um i haven't compared that i mean recently i would say that 
my impression of the of the um, of the X reel was that it was very high resolution and the color was probably a lot brighter than what I saw with the MetaQuest two that I have. Um, I still see pixelation in the in the X reel, you know. So it's not like I don't see any that's there. And so, um, but I but I I felt like it was higher quality. But I I'll I'll see if I can put both of them on back and forth. It's hard. You, I got to find the same footage. You know, I have to jump into the movies or the Netflix app or whatever and see if I can't like look at something on one and then look at something on the other. Um, I think that the the X reel has the the X reel has the advantage that it's not. It's not being built for that headset. It is a, a basically like an HDMI out from your computer. So it's not dealing with the same level of compression and everything else that other ones do. I did find that watching YouTube on it was not a great experience. Um, it For whatever reason, I could see a lot of compression in YouTube, and I couldn't quite figure out why. Um, it also doesn't handle... Um, uh, it, it doesn't handle HDCP, so it anytime you hit something that's copyright flagged, it just turns off. <laughs> so you know, I didn't get any of that footage. So those are the the other challenges there. Uh, next question, and it's a QR code drop question from Rich Clemens in Morgantown, West Virginia. Why does our on-screen QR code for asking questions say .com rather than .global, which works? It's a QR code question about the QR code. <laughs> How meta. Anyway, so um, so anyway, it's, it's, um, it, it is very scientific. It's that when I did it, I couldn't get the global to work for some reason, and so I did .com, and I haven't gotten around to fixing the QR code. <laughs> it's, it's, um, there's a little bit of work I got to do with that QR code, and so the guys then went out and did the work to get the global working, and so global does work. I just haven't fixed the, the, the key yet. So we'll, we'll get that fixed. Um, I was going to do it last week and then I came down with something so I'm so we'll um but stay tuned we'll we'll get it fixed but you can use dot global as well uh, next question from Evan Troxel at Talent Oregon the question is regarding cloud-based remote recording studios I use them for audio and video podcast is there a preference among the group between riverside.fm and squadcast and why you know um uh, Squadcast is a lot less expensive, I think, than Riverside, if I remember correctly. But I haven't used Riverside. I used it. We used it once, and it has this weird windowing thing that it was cutting people off, and um, it frustrated us so much that we. St- I know that you could pay more to to get it to to do it, but the fact that they did it, I don't know. There was a thought process there that made me really upset, and um, that they were going to do that to us for to make us pay more. And I just got mad and wouldn't use them. <laughs> like, so I, was like, I just, you know, like it was just like, I was like, oh, this is, that's just BS. You know, like it, it would just felt like it felt so artificial the way that they were clipping it that, and, and we made a bunch of mistakes because of it. We used it, you know, once. And because of that, we, we made some mistakes about framing and we suddenly realized we had a wider aperture than we thought we did. And then we were told we'd pay and then we'd see the full aperture. And I just, I was so angry that I just wouldn't use them again. So we're moving, we're probably moving out of Zoom for off, for, um, uh, and to, and we're researching Squadcast for our Michael Krasny because Zoom doesn't do double recording, even though they promised they would a year ago. Um, yeah, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I haven't tried Squadcast, but with Riverside, uh, the benefit is that it's actually recording locally. So you can do the interview live, but then you're recording locally, and after you wrap, it will upload that file in the that's higher what quality. That's Squadcast does as well. Squadcast does the same thing? That's, okay. that's exactly what it does. I, I don't know if it does. It, it, it'll it'll record the individual. Yeah, that's that's what it that's its big advantage. So I I don't know. We'd have to look at one versus the other. But I haven't used Squadcast before, so we're starting to research it because we just decided we had to move past Zoom for for this specific thing because lack of double ended recording just became a. We kept on thinking it was going to come, and then we've given up. So um so the 
Um, so the so the squad cast is the one we're looking at. Um, and I've been brought on to other shows. It's super convenient. They send you a link, you jump in, you hit record, and boom, you're you're on. And so I think that it's actually going to be a great solution for us. The only thing that we're missing is really the ice zoom ISO. <laughs> you know, like for, we want to do a live video of it. If we don't care about live, then I think that Squadcast would be is going to be great. Uh, next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida, with another QR drop question. Errors importing frame.io markers, EDL, into DaVinci, not studio. DaVinci project starting time, one hour. Media starts at 59.59. Frame.io starts at zero time code. Tried editing EDL. Tried changing DaVinci start times. So I will admit that um, we had enough problems with getting frame to always line up the way we wanted it to that years ago I just stopped using it so I don't I don't have a lot of experience like we just had a lot of like it when it I think if you spend enough time setting up the record I think you would need to set up the record and make sure that the starting time is correct and everything else that's there um, you might be able to get that to um, uh you might be able to get that to work. I think it's just a matter of having the the person who managed the recording set the start time correctly um, to make that work. But I will say that it was like I just felt like there wasn't. I didn't need it as much as I thought I did. <laughs> so I, so I, I, you know, I, I do a lot in frame, and I just was like, and I know that it's really cool to have the markers, but I kept on having trouble with the markers not coming in, the markers not coming in on time. The once I edit it, does the markers really make? You know, it it just became easier for me to just use the time code, you know, like, like just go to the times that I did edit from the back to the front and just not think about it anymore. So, um, yeah, I don't have a great answer for you other than that works great. <laughs> so, uh, next question. Brody Hefner from New York City. When presenting Keynote on an M1 Mac, uh, MacBook via a long HDMI cable to a Samsung monitor, no image, but a short cable worked. The local tech inserted a decimator at the receiving end of the long cable, which worked. Does a decimator boost a weak HDMI signal? Go, Serge. I think the problem is more your long cable that might not be compatible with, let's say, 4K. Uh, if the Samsung monitor is 4K, the Mac will automatically try to do 4K, and that long cable might be the issue. The decimator at that point will probably just get the 1080p, and that same cable will work fine with 1080p, and after that, you don't have that problem. Go, Jason. Yeah, um, my guess is in, in what's happening here is that it's it's just stabilizing the EDID handshake, which is the two-way connection that HDMI does anytime you plug a monitor in, and um, and just kind of straightening the whole thing out. the The problem is definitely the cable, and your tech definitely made the right choice. Good, Courtney. Yeah, if the cable impedance is wrong, if it gets to be a long cable, the square waves that are the part the, the video that goes down that cable gets rounded off. And the decimator will uh, discriminate on those rounded off uh, and reclock reclock the incoming video. So that's how the decimator can correct it at the far end. And so it's a good idea to have one of those around to stick it on there to reclock your signals, especially at the end of a long cable. And if it doesn't have that decimator in there, the uh, sync signals are too rounded for it to get a precise signal. It'll just shut off the video. 
and and a lot of this has to do with the quality of the HDMI um, you know decoder that's sitting in the in the the TV one is going to be as little as they could possibly spend on it because um, they expect you to run a really good signal to it that's no longer than six feet you know like like that's the the TV is expecting a a perfect signal or it's not going to you know in general they're not, that's not where they spend money um, the decimator has higher end decoders. You get into then, you know, some of the other machines, you know, there's a lot of clocking that can be done that that can, um, make, you know, the, there's a lot of machines that can handle a lot of mess that, that, that do it. AJA makes particularly good ones because it's like triple clocked, you know, inside. So the, um, uh, so it just depends on, on, you know, there. But I would say that um, depending on what your resolution is, I wouldn't go over, I typically try not to make HDMI. I don't force HDMI unless you're using fiber one way. I, I wouldn't do HDMI over 12 feet. Um, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, before I didn't trust these long uh, fiber HDMI cables, but I've began to. We used a ton of them on a production and they all worked flawlessly up to 300 feet. And so that's the thing is, do you want to spend money on the decimator, which I agree is always, I have three decimators on my desk right now doing different kinds of conversions and I carry one on a shoot all the time. But the thing is, uh, if you're just... If you don't want to spend 300 bucks on a decimator, you can buy a 100-foot cable for 83 bucks on Amazon. So something to, and you can return it if it doesn't work. So, and But be careful, it's only one way. It's unidirectional. So it'll say source and destination. Make sure you have them at the right end. Otherwise, you're going to have to pull that cable all back up and rerun it. And that's why, I mean, for us, a lot of times we convert it to some kind of HDMI to SDI and then SDI back to HDMI, specifically because then the cable itself is not particularly valuable <laughs> to us. You know, like it's it's not, you know, like, and we can, it's it's bi-directional. So, um, but the, it, we, uh, that's been the problem that we've had. We we have had a couple HDMI cable, the one-way HDMI cables that were like 100 feet, not 300 feet. Um, and... Uh, when they got broken, then we were really bummed. And then and we just went, let's just go back to the thing we have a lot of. <laughs> so the next question. Next one from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Andy has this comment. FYI, I use this mic daily, a DD VO7U kits, currently 50% off until October 23rd. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, it's it's a nice looking kit. They've done it in white. Oh, that's interesting. That didn't disappeared. Uh, let's see if I can plug this in real quick. Uh, basically, they're offering this for ninety nine dollars, kind of as a whole kit. They've got the cables. They've got everything else going on in there. No, I'm still not coming up. Oh well. That oh there we go. Got now I got it up. So it's a it's a nice looking microphone. It's if it's ninety nine dollars though. There's not a lot of parts in this. I would think if you're just starting out and you want to see if you're uh, in interested in doing VO from your desk or podcasting or something like that, it might be a good thing. It should work just fine. There's nothing specific about that. I was surprised. I looked down at the key features list, and the first thing they note is 12 unique RGB colors. I'm not sure why that would be the number one feature of the microphone. So maybe they're attacking kind of beginners in the thing, but it should work just fine. Hmm. A, a half-off sale between the, uh, that ends on the 23rd when NAB and AES are to, are the following week. <laughs> like, just, perhaps a new announcement coming? Things that make you go, hmm. Clearing <laughs> so, some stock. <laughs> so if it does exactly what you want, you know, you, you maybe, maybe that's worth it. 
But you may want to consider that there, there could be something on the other end of that of that sale. Usually when we see these kind of let's clear the warehouse, it's like we're not going to be able to sell these after next week. So um, Deity builds great mics. I, I think it'll be interesting to see what um, what they come out with next week. <laughs> so I have no I have any. The only inside information is what you just posted for us. So anyway, um, uh, so let's see what let's see what happens um, coming up. Uh, yeah, we'll be talking about lower thirds here in just a minute. Uh, and the rest of the week, we have live acoustics in historical spaces tomorrow. Uh, Michael Holmes is going to be joining us. He's the artistic director of the Washington uh, Cornet and Sackbutt Ensemble uh, since 1998. And he's going to be talking about, you know, how the considerations of space as you start to do sound reinforcement, which should be really interesting. Um, Thursday, we're going to talk about camera sensors and understanding why some of us talk about big camera sensors or little camera sensors, the kind of camera sensors and how they affect the quality of what we're shooting. Um, uh, so stay tuned for that. If you've got questions about it, we'll be talking about size and how they work and, and sensitivity and all those things there. Um, on Friday, we're going to um, Friday we're gonna talk, have OWC here talking about jellyfish and storage. They're not going to talk about diving at all. So the jellyfish is the one of the storage things that OWC has, but the, but, but uh, um, it's going to be great. Uh, good, my, my good friend, uh, Sam Messman, is going to be part of that crew um, that is going to be showing up for that um, in the... Uh, on Friday. Saturday, of course, is the weekend. We're going to be doing some R&D. We're doing HDR 5.1, as well as answering your questions. Uh, Sunday's introspection. It's when you really can ask questions and concerns and everything else about office hours. We don't broadcast that, but you can be part of that. Also, just a quick reminder that we are looking for panelists. If you're interested in being a panelist, go to officehours.global slash panelist, and you can sign up, and we'll start sending you emails and let you know what to do next. Now, let's go ahead and jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, and we are now here talking about uh, lower thirds. And you know, in the past, we have um, uh, uh, we've we've talked about lower thirds, and we've kind of gone through somebody else's lower thirds, and and w- looked at lots of different broadcasts and made those dis- dis- discussions. And we may show a couple graphics here and there, but really, what we want to talk about is just the how we approach them. Um, and uh, in addition to our um, uh, uh, in, in addition to our general panel, we have uh, Tuomo Coloma uh, here, uh, who we know works for SPX um, and uh, who was on last week uh, talking to us about that, as well as Alex Golner, uh, who does a lot of lower thirds <laughs> and, is, and is someone that I consider that I've worked a lot with on lower thirds. And so so anyway, uh, and and then a lot of us here have all done a lot of lower thirds here. So so the um, and if you're on, in the panel, uh, go ahead and throw if you have anything you want to say your two points. But but I think that um, the before we get to the questions, if you have questions about lower thirds, this is really kind of an open discussion about you know, how we approach them and how we look at them and how we generate them and what the things that you want to think about um, there. Um, I think that the most basic thing that most of us start to think about when a client comes to me and says, I want to do lower thirds, the first thing I ask is, do you want them to move or not? <laughs> you know, like, you know, like that's the the very first thing I ask is, is this going to be something that fades up and then fades back down? Um, or is it going to be something that uh, is going to animate out and then animate back in. Um, and the reason for that is that that's going to define a lot of our pipeline. So, um, you know, so especially if for those of us who are using hardware, um, that pipeline becomes something that we we start to think about uh, is are we going to need to key something? So 
If it's a still, a lot of times we're using just the the buffers inside of our switchers um, to make that happen, and that can be both in software and hardware. If it's going to be animated, um, in some cases we can load those into the buffers and software switchers. We can load those into the into those bits and pieces. But in a hardware switcher, we're often talking about how we're going to key that footage, key that lower third. So are we going to do a luma? You know, I have to admit that I'm still old old school in the sense that many times um, I will either use key fill, um, and, and we can talk a little bit about, we're going to talk about key fill in detail in a couple weeks, but um, that I'll either use key, if I don't have a ability to do key fill, I will um, use, uh, I'll almost always use luma key over chroma key, and the reason for that is the sampling, so that the chroma key will show uh, aliasing along the edges. Um, of course, if you have a software uh, compositor, um, you have HTML5, you know, so you can now, um, you can insert those as w- without any of those needs. So it just depends on those things. So that's the first thing we ask. And it also starts to build that design. Then we start to think about, you know, the things that, some of the things that um, that we start to think about is also placement. When you think about lower thirds, you have to think about everything else that's going on in the space. You know, so are there, for instance, you know, you, you think about your lower third, but you may have, you know, you may have a ticker that goes, you know, a ticker that goes down here. And then you have a, you know, you, you might have, um, you know, up a, a, well, down here, you might have a, some kind of uh, bug that gets added to the thing that's sitting underneath the, the ticker. And then if you're doing social media, you have to start thinking about, um, I've got all those stupid little bubbles that fly, fly up that drive us, most of us absolutely bonkers um, when we're designing things for this. Um, and then, in addition to that, you have so you might have a lower third that's going to pop in here. But then the other thing you have to, other thing you have to start considering is we. I just got into this long discussion with someone about this captions. So you have you know <laughs> captions that are, and captions have become. It's it's interesting. Captions were something that you had to kind of persuade people to think about, or you had to talk about it, and it was very rare, maybe ten years ago, and now it is everywhere. You know, like it. You know, and you and and part of that. There's a couple different things that happen there that that have affected um, captions and, and how they're used. Uh, one was social media because people make decisions about whether they're going to watch your show based on they're going to open up that that up and they're going to see text going across the bottom and they'll decide whether they want to turn the audio on or not. So um, so they so it became marketing for the piece. So that became something that people are burning titles in or doing other things with it. The um, the second reason is is because the audio. Um, is so embedded the the um, uh, dialogue in many movies now is so embedded into the background that a lot of people are turning the captions on because they can't understand what people are saying, and so then they get into the habit of having captions on all the time. And almost all the services now turn the captions on automatically. Like you, I have to go. I don't know if it's like this for everybody, but I have to go and turn captions off all the time if I want to. You know, so so the captions are up. So that definitely affects it. One of the things that. I know that we've been moving towards is is finding safe space and and again, Alex and 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 Tuomo and and Bill and others and you can talk about this. But I'm starting to you know we're we're starting to lean towards this is um this is my safe space. <laughs> you know, like like this is the place I can I can tag people. You know, it used to be it used to be all under here. You know that we we would tag, and then the other thing that people for a while people were deciding. I don't know how much this is still the case. Is you know you had you know are we fr- framing for any kind of four by three? But that's kind of fallen away. We don't worry too much about centering this stuff. I don't worry about too much about centering it. The one thing we do worry about is if we're trying to for some reason center crop this for a nine by sixteen, 
then you then you're thinking about like do the captions fit in here you know to to make that actually work usually we try to do those separately um rather than worrying about it um so those are the i mean those are some of the initial things that we start to think about um but this has been what we started to consider the safe space the problem is is that this is also a place that we um start thinking about putting subtitling if we're mixing and matching it with captions it's complicated so but that's that this this has been kind of one of the few places there um the the a couple things that we um start to think about there with with the with these um with cap with uh, subtitles is also you know of course and, and again um you know alex and, and tuomo and, and others and mitchell and bill can um outline some of this but thinking about fonts you just want them to be readable i think we we have cl clients that start off with well this is our font and i'm like well it's it's a serif font <laughs> like like you try to explain gently that like that's not really that readable like you know like and, and it and it and it looks very it looks very old um so uh readability becomes a big deal uh, oftentimes we're using sans uh or sans serif fonts um and uh and generally pretty heavy there um so those are those are some of the initial considerations that 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 we have um as we start to build those uh, lower thirds uh, go ahead mitchell yeah, sans serif fonts make sense. Uh, I love Futura because you get a lot of different families. You can deal with condensed uh, stuff for different things like names or wider uh, things with uh, titles are a little bit more condensed. Uh, my workflow is uh, the Adobe workflow. I go and design mostly in After Effects, uh, create an essential graphic, export a Mogurt file into Premiere, and then bring it in. And uh, the cool thing about that file is that you have the ability to uh, extend, uh, change the manipulation of the uh, animation, if any. And it's just a cool uh, workflow to have if you're in the Adobe workflow. And if I'm living in the Zoom world, I definitely want to use uh, Tuomo's uh, gadget. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and and you can see that that and 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 Tuomo actually designed the ones that we use here, and and we are using SPX for this right here, and um, and uh, Tuomo, do you want to talk a little bit about the thought process that you had as you built the lower thirds for what we use here in office hours? Sure. So uh, when I think about lower thirds, it's actually I consider it as as a part of a bigger idea, which is called a, sort of like a, a design package. So lower thirds for me is just part of the show branding. So basically we are approaching show design and it's actually content. So quite often when, when considering lower thirds, you are having these deep discussions with the show producer and director that what kind of a content, what kind of a topics and, and things are being discussed in the show. And that, that is going to affect your dis design decisions. So you, you might have, uh, well, two different production methods. You you are going to do either a live show or a pre-recorded show. That's one <laughs> differentiator, and that is going to affect your workflow overall and your your toolkit. That what you are going to to use to produce to these things. But quite often, I I find it uh, I find it very useful to first think about the, the show content and then discuss what can be supported by using graphics, and uh, and then. It's often often the case that the, the show producer or director hasn't really thought about that idea that oh right, so we we have this this question coming in from from the audience. Maybe we should show that on screen somehow, or we have pictures, we have social media connections, we have we have we need to promote some things. So all these things are slowly making their way into the. Uh, design package of a show or a network and so then 
the discussion of, of using lower thirds, uh, in this context, we are quite often, uh, we consider lower thirds just a sim simple name tag or name strap for a person on screen. But usually in my pro projects, it's it's way more complex than that. Yeah, and and I, you know, I think that, um, the, you know, there's a, I think that there's a lot of uh, discussions about what does that strap mean, you know? And, and again, in 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 in, uh, in Europe, we find it, a lot of people refer to them as straps, you know. For um, and so uh, so the um, but but like why are we doing that? A lot of times, I'm thinking about like especially when I'm thinking about it in post, and and to some degree when we think about it in in live, it's when would you go? Who is this person? <laughs> you know, like who am I? Who am I looking at as far as a lower third? And that's in a perfect world, you hand it to them right when they think about that they think uh, you know usually that's near the beginning of when they uh, you know arrive and then somewhere in the middle you may want to show them again but you're trying to make that decision of how often do you have to have you know do it um through that process if you think that the person's going to watch start to finish then you don't need to do it very often if they're if you think people are going in and out then you have to kind of um, id them more often um i try to make it i i know i have to admit that i tend to be a little um I want it to always just be of service to the to the viewer. I'm not trying to um, take over. I don't want the lower thirds to be something that I'm looking at all the time, um, you know. And uh, and and so it's you know I, I I try to make them like they're just kind of quietly handed to you as we're working. Um, Alex, I'm going to let you jump in, and then I'll come to Bill. I'm going a little out of order. Go ahead and go, ahead, Alex. So in in practice, um, in, also in the UK, they also refer to Astons. So it's, very, it's specifically to do with a person's name and their position is called an Aston as well. Um, so lower thirds, tummy tag as well is another and, one. And, and live, in, in the United States at least, in live, you'll hear font. You know, like font is the is the call for the lower, you know, font, you know, um, you know uh, ready for Or Chiron. You know, Chiron. Chiron, I don't think you hear that much when they're calling it live. Usually they call fonts at this point. I think it's just because it's easier to say. Um, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Alex. So um, the thing when it comes to it, um, Duan was totally right that essentially what we have are lower thirds for so many different reasons and uh, that we are kind of talking about um, imagining that a video is a bit like a magazine because essentially what you need to do is people to be able to nav navigate the video. And you could say lower thirds or the graphic elements are the elements that are the magazine design that are different from the articles in the magazine for people who remember printed magazines. And the way that printed magazines work <laughs> is there's lots of different ways into the story. It's like, oh, I think I'll, the headline will catch my eye or the picture or the caption below the picture or the subhead or the pull quote. So that's when you get a little excerpt from the article halfway through. And if you think of your videos in a similar sort of way, it's quite handy because essentially what you've got are different lower thirds and different kinds of things to cue people into what you're, what you're watching. So sometimes you'll have your navigation lower third, which is like your headlines at the top of hour of a, of a new show or when you're changing subjects. So that's a kind of navigation lower third. Then you have informational, which sometimes ideally is in sync with what people are saying, but sometimes if it's live, it's actually just other stuff that you want to talk about or want to cover because you don't know what the contributor is going to do. And then you have people's names. And you have a few other bits and pieces like statutory stuff, like the copyright requires that you put the copyright in there. Or sometimes you want to say what the source is in case people need to be reassured what the source of what you're seeing is uh, video-wise. So... Sometimes with your design packages, you actually is a good idea to come up with different versions of your design that make it clear what it is that you're showing. 
So you don't want the lower third of the person's name to look like a pull quote or like a quote or useful piece of information or a bit of navigation. You actually want them to be related to each other, but you want them to be different so people don't get confused by the fact, oh, something's coming up. Oh, I thought it was going to be this person's name, but it turns out to be um, coming up later on this channel or later on the show or some useful information or some references. So what happens is when you do these designs where you come up with a a suite, you have to say, well, okay, what kind of classes of things are going to have and what, what are things that are quite similar to each other so they should look the same and what things should look different. So I've been doing lots of uh, work for the BBC this year, so that's why I haven't been so much on office hours. So I early, earlier this year worked on the BBC News International and UK rebrand. Um, so that was the stuff that was between shows, but of course I was there having a close look at the actual channel itself while we were doing it. And it's interesting to see how you have to have then channel consistency. So you could say if you're doing a five-day event for a client and everything's being streamed online, then you want the whole conference or the whole event to be consistent but then you want to do maybe a different branding for the day or maybe for themes and stuff like that and you use color schemes and stuff like that so essentially what it is is a design language that is then reflected in what lower thirds can do and then when it comes to what lower thirds can do is i would say you could divide them into two groups ones where you want people while watching to pay attention to them or other ones where when people are watching, you don't want those things to be distracting from the content. And those are the two. And the design rule is, if you don't want it to people to be distracted, then don't do an animation to animate things on or animate them off. You cut them on. But if you want people to actually pay attention, then you put a little flicker. A little flicker in the part of the screen where you're supposed to look, where things are animating up and stuff like that. So you have different rules. But then once you're in a flow of people looking at a graphic... Say, for example, it's what the BBC would call narrative text in which there's no voiceover. It's just a series of useful footage. But then you essentially, instead of doing a voiceover, you just have a series of bits of narrative text, which is saying um, the fire started at 3 a.m. In a few moments, just footage. And then uh, the emergency services arrived 25 minutes later. And then essentially what you're doing is you're using your, in that case, your graphics as voiceover. Um, so anyway, that's what I, my initial thoughts on how you kind of have to create a consistency and you have to make things different that are different from each other, but make them look like they're from the same world. That's and, how you think of graphics. And no, absolutely. And I think these are great, great way to think about it because I think that what you start to, as we start to scratch at this, you realize how complex it can be. And one of the things that, that we recommend is for clients to really think about what they want to do with graphics or keep them really simple. <laughs> like, you know, like it's, but you know, like if you're not going to, you know, it, it's fine for you to say, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but don't make something complex that is you're going to do in the last week. You know, you know, it's, you know, if, if, if we're going to do it in the last week or the last month, you know, let's just figure out something that's super subtle that just kind of pops up and, and leaves. Um, or let's spend the next quarter doing tests and looking at things and figuring out what colors you want to use and doing all those things. It doesn't mean that someone, you know, it's just, it's, it doesn't have to be super expensive, but it does have to take time. Like you might have a person doing this and, you know, it, it allows it to go through the, it's not that you have a team or, I mean, sometimes you do, but for a for a smaller client, it may it may not mean that they have a team of three people working full time for three months. It just means that they're seeing something every week from a from a designer, and they're able to go through the decision machinations that are required to get that done, um, so that they can make a you know group decision about what they want it to look like, which is very hard. <laughs> like you know, it's it's hard to get everybody to agree on on um, 
you know, what those subject matters are. And I, and I would say that I feel like the BBC does some of the best work when it comes to, you know, their graphics and lower thirds and everything else. It, it feels much more thought out, I guess is what I would say, um, for the general channel, right? You know, like there's, you know, the, I love, I, um, I have to admit that I, you know, in the United States, the biggest money is in, you know, obviously football games. And so what you see there is the, how much data we can give you on a, on a moment by moment basis, you know, sitting in your lower third. Um, and it, it, it really is a cipher that it takes time to figure out what's all in that. There's a whole bunch of things that they're telling you that are in there that everybody wants to see. And, you know, different, you know, different uh, broadcasters do it better than others. I think, you know, NBC and Amazon right now do it the best. And, and um, it's really interesting to watch, you know, how they, how they put those things together. I was talking to someone about the Thursday night football. I was like, if you wanted to give a master's course on, on doing graphics, just take a whole quarter and have the students try to reproduce one, one of those graphics. <laughs> like, like, like it's just, they're so complex, you know, as they go through it. And I think the same thing could be said for BBC. Like if I was going to do a design course, I would take, I would have people doing, you know, just take the, and by the way, this is the best way to learn how to do graphics. This is how I got into doing graphics is that I sat in After Effects. This is, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to show my age. Uh, over, well, it was about 30 years ago now, I uh, was, I was an intern at a, at Prime Sports Network. What's funny is, is they wouldn't actually let me, um, I wasn't actually allowed to touch the graphics. They had a video toaster. And uh, I, I, I was the print designer, so I designed all the ads for, um, I was an intern, but I don't know, I took over. I, I got them to fire the press, their, their, um, uh, their ad agency. <laughs> so, and let me do all the, all the regional ads. So anyway, so for, for $7 an hour. And so, um, so anyway, uh, so I did all the regional ads, but I wanted to do graphics. And so I couldn't do it at Prime Sports Network uh, because they were there. So I literally interned for nothing over at a um, uh, at a place that sold Electric Image and Form Z and After Effects and Ocosa back then, and um, anyway, so uh, I would sit over there, and all I did was I I copied, I had a VH, VHS copy of uh, I would copy broadcasts, and then I would put them into Premiere, and I'd get them frame by frame. And I would literally just reproduce the, I would reproduce the lower thirds, I'd reproduce the opens, the sweepers, the, and I would try to do it to the pixel. You know, like, like, how do I get it to all work there? And then I would change it a little bit and put it on my demo reel. <laughs> That's how I got some work for HBO. You know, like, you know, and, and, but I would, I would, um, but I would change it, you know, and, but the idea was, is that I, I just kept on, um, the best way to learn this stuff is to, is to, is to just copy people who are really good at it to, that's the first step. And then you understand the mechanics of what it takes to make that actually work. So if you're, as you're getting into this, I would highly recommend taking, I wouldn't start with uh, the NFL stuff because it's, it, if you know what you're looking at, it's super deep water. <laughs> like, you know, like it's super deep water. What I like about the BBC is that BBC tends to not be as deep as far as the technical, but the design is impeccable. You know, like the the use of white space, the use of layout, the use of animation, and it's still complex. It, it you know, and, 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 and I don't know if Alex wants to argue with me there or, or, or outline that, but I feel like it's a, it's a simpler thing, but it's just really well done. You know, it's, it's really, you can tell that there's a lot of meetings. <laughs> to figure that out. Um, when you think about fonts, uh, what do you, Alex, what do you think about? Well, I think serif is okay as long as you make it large enough. 
So, um, and Do you really for, see broadcast graphics with serif fonts? Yeah. I mean, the thing is that um, okay. it is true the BBC News Channel is trying to use less of it, but they do, yeah. when when we're talking headlines and certain yeah. things, they will actually use serif because essentially that would be, the size would have to be like five lines of text. Is that kind of like a nod back screen. to print? Like for headlines, it's kind of a nod back to... Maybe, the although the days. thing is, that is true. But I, I would say that the, I think they use it for contrast, so that they use it as a as a contrast yeah. to information. So they will actually use um, serif, although it is being, as they say in software, depreciated. Uh, so yeah. that they, it's not being used at, a, at the smaller sizes that they have uh, up until recently. Um, I, but no, it is, it, that's essentially the rule. Is uh, the general rule has been that they do have a whole range of. They had a typeface commissioned uh, for the BBC, both because BBC uh, Sans and BBC Serif, uh, effectively. Uh, it's I will downloadable say it. even I, from the, from their website. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. The um, I will say this is a complete non sequitur, and then we'll jump to Bill here. That uh, um, that if you are a large company, and I don't mean a big company, but I mean a largest company, getting your own font done saves you so much time and effort it is because so, you know you have all these licensing issues if you're trying to pay attention to the license of your font and the rules if you're most people just ignore the rules but they are putting themselves out at some you know risk to do that um and it is such a great thing we, i work with companies that do that and it just makes it easier because like here's the font and they own the font it's their look it oftentimes looks like something else like it's kind of close to something but they've added their own little twist to it um, but having a foundry put it together for you is, it just makes it so much nicer. Can I tell you, um, Unilever, Unilever Sands, so the company Unilever, yeah. um, you know, 700,000 employees. And if you look at their typeface, it is Frutiger, but with a curly L. And uh, three other characters that are actually different, but enough so that if you see more than five or six words in that type, you think it's different. And most people right. can't tell the difference because you can't copyright the actual shapes of letters. Yeah. But you can, as Steve Jobs knows, you can copyright na names of fonts, hence all the fonts initially on the Mac having been named after cities and uh, with ironic links to the actual fonts that they're, being, that they're ripping off. I mean, being inspired by. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Except San Francisco. Um, I don't think anything has changed more in my career in terms of inside my head than the use of graphics on uh, moving pictures and on screens and displays. And I say that because we know that, you know, broadcast is still a big deal. It's still the, the Super Bowl is still the biggest game in town and the rest of that kind of stuff. But obviously more and more eyeballs are moving to these other forms of time spent consuming information. And I'm just fascinated by the idea of flickering through your, your Instagram account or your Facebook account or something like that. And what people are having to try to figure out in terms of just briefly catching someone's eye and stop them. Alex was mentioning the fact that they're doing text blocks so that you can hopefully grab them. And all of that is just, you know, tested and tuned down because it is so hard to get somebody who's just going by to stop. And if they don't, it reminds me of the old billboard conundrum as somebody's driving by. If you don't catch them in the first seven words and make an impact, Packed on them, they are going to drive by and pay no attention to it. So I think you really do need new tools for this new era. Most of the old type came out of the print world, but it's changed now. And I think what Tuomo's doing in terms of HTML 
generated source graphics that can be really conveniently put into a stream because that's what we're watching is streams and floating pieces. And to get something that allows you to do that efficiently is, I think, the whole game now because nobody has time anymore to do more than flip until you find something that catches you and then spend a few minutes with it. One of the things that I really um, found interesting, I I find interesting in general about TikTok, but I really found interesting about um, uh, one specific thing, which was the unbearable. There was a scene or, or a cut between the unbearable likeness of greatness or whatever with, with, uh, with, um, where there's a, they're in the convertible and it cuts back and forth. And the only thing they're using, uh, everybody used the same clip and all they changed was the text. <laughs> like, you know, and they would get to say how work is going, how their relationship's going, how they are in life and everything else. And I realized how powerful that, that can be is just, uh, there's like, there were thou- like, hundreds of thousands of videos of people showing their own version of that. You know, it was just really interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. I also agree that the BBC does a great job. It's classy. Um, The lockups are perfect. Um, It's a good way to do things. On the other hand, a lot of things here in the U.S. of A. um, is uh, let's throw as much stuff down here as we can um, without any regard at all to whether it uh, complements or contrasts uh, what's going on in the uh, the main image? You know, I go back to the days we used to stack a couple of lines of text with a Chiron machine to say who and where. Uh, nowadays, uh, you have to deal with. Well, I do a lot of corporate work. Uh, you're dealing with style guides, uh, color colorways, uh, corporate logos, and everything must be just so uh, in order to be able to be acceptable. So it's gotten much more complicated and much more dramatically. Uh, in your face. I mean, broadcast TV with the lower third bugs that are dancing around and they've got little characters. I mean, what? What isn't going through their heads when they design that into when you're trying to watch an action sequence and you're competing with all this stuff going on over in the corner? Don't like it. I have to admit that I, uh, I know that I'm probably on the far end, but every time the C- CNN stretches uh, the, the font, I have to turn. I, I literally have to. I, I, it makes me so upset. I have to change the channel. <laughs> like I just can't. Like it'll pop up and I'll, and I'll, I'll be like, "Are they going to do that?" And then they stretch it, and I'm like, "Okay, I'm done. Like I can't watch that." It, it just Alex it's, goes, <gasps> man, so wrong. I, it's just so I, wrong." Same for, I, what I do is I pre- I pause if I'm in the, in the right mood, and whoever's with, and then I have to. I count the number of typefaces they've used on the screen and in, in oh. CNN on the lower third, or it's, in, in any moment. They, it's just like it's they so just garish. and. <laughs> But they're so similar design fonts, but just slightly different. So the one is slightly different from the one and the other one. And it's just like... It's just the worst. So don't spend your time recreating CNN is my no, tip. No, just leave that one alone. Yeah, if, if someone's watching from CNN, I apologize. I don't blame you. Like, I know that, you know, but but wow, someone's got to like... Someone needs to go spend a year figuring out what you actually wanted to do and then just do that thing. Yeah, fonts are not meant to be stretched no, up and down. No, just not, not like meant to be. Not like that. Uh, Tuomo. Uh, yeah, uh, about a thought about the CNN uh, situation. So uh, actually, a, a sort of like a production difficulty when it, when you're producing news is that you have 100 or 1,000 uh, journalists entering content into a template system, and they may or may not have a preview at their disposal. So they are just uh, writing stuff there. And you as a designer, you, you will need to figure out how you are going to squeeze all that content into a screen. And there are a couple of approaches that you can do. You can either have a 
have a sort of like a fixed limit, how many characters you can fit onto a screen. But the difficulty there is that since we are not using monospace fonts, it means that if you have a, a phrase which has a lot of I's and L's, it is going to be super narrow. And if you have M's and W's and O's, it is going to be super wide. So what you can do, you can you can either start squeezing text in, like you are doing at CNN, or you can you can scale it down. But once you start to scale it down, then it may not uh, match with all the other text on screen. So it's it's a it's a very difficult problem. In some situations, you might do a wrap, so you you will have, uh, you will use several lines of text on screen at once. So these are the things that you will you will start to consider when you actually start producing this stuff. And if you happen to be uh, in one of these big broadcast trade shows like IBC or NAB in the States, and you go to the Hall 7 or whatever it is, it's full of graphic vendors who are who are supplying workflows and tools for figuring out the live production graphics. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge, massive industry in the world. And people who are not in that industry don't uh, consider it too much. Yeah, it's just that my, my thing about CNN is that not everybody does that. Not everybody has that problem. <laughs> you know, like they, it's not everybody's, other people have figured it out. That's all, that's all I'm saying. They've just decided not to. Uh, next, let's go to the first question. First question coming in from Michael Tan in San Diego, California. It's a lower third question. And is it common to change lower thirds on the fly during a show? And if so, what do you use to change it quickly before sending it to program? And this is coming in from the QR code, by the way. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. Well, uh, I've seen people use PowerPoint in the key and fill. So essentially you type it straight, You there's a slide and you type in the new value into the, uh, into PowerPoint and that's and somebody switches that source from the PowerPoint which is showing on the PC and it goes very quickly. It's a very quick way to change things because you know it's done, but it's quite scary. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Oop, can't hear you. But I can't hear you. Zoom muted, Tuomo. You're zoom muted. Sorry. So uh, it depends on your budget. So you can you can use a PowerPoint or you can use a photo editing application, something to create an asset that you will be able to uh, show on screen somehow. But on the other end, you will have you you might have a huge uh, workflow where you have real-time 3D renderers and you have journalists entering data or it is going to be extracted from an automation system. So it really varies that what, what kind of production are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, dynamic, you know, what you're seeing with our show is actually dynamically being generated. So, um, you know, uh, SPX is getting data from Mukana and from other other sources and, and throwing those things in. So those are, um, you know, that 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 data, we're not, no one typing anything in. <laughs> like we typed it in eventually. I mean, our name is there, but the, um, but that, those, all that stuff is being popped up dynamically. And that is one way to do that. Um, definitely we have um, other, you know, with a lot of the, um, the Avid systems and some of the other ones that are there, yeah, you're, you have a database that you're just typing into. And it, if you change that, you can change it on air. But typically what happens is, is there's triggers. So if someone changes it, you'll see it swing off and then swing right back on again. So that's a, that's a behavior. Like someone just touched that data point. And when they touch it, it, I mean, that's a technical term of they touch the, they, they, they touch something. And so it goes, I'm going to go off. I'm going to change it and come back on again, grab the data again and come back on again. So that's a pretty common thing to do as well. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, and all the live news graphics packages have a means of putting in breaking news uh, stories. And when they're do- doing a live interview with someone, uh, there, there's a graphics operator in front of a keyboard that is listening to what's being said live uh, in the live interview. And they'll type in a key phrase like, you know, you know, uh, reports missing person showing up in his garage, you know, or something. Uh, that just hap- just said a moment ago, and they'll keep that as a tagline at the bottom of the screen to keep you informed with uh, what is going on, what they're talking about, and what the breaking news is. So almost all the news packages that are, there's different software packages available for local news and network news that incorporates, uh, you know, Chiron type live insertion of last minute things. So they, they type it in, they look at it, and the director can take it on a moment's notice. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of times one of the things that we try to do if we're not, you know, not at that budget is to have two keyers, you know, in, in setup ready to go for our system. So having two downstream keyers allows us to, you know, make sure that we can make an adjustment and then go from one to the other or, you know, animate out, animate back in, and then we can make those adjustments on kind of a lower budget system. Uh, next question. James Babbitt in San Diego, California. Hi, Alex. The safe space on the screen seems small. What type of information would you put into this space? And I'm talking specifically oftentimes about social and other things that in live streams that we do and where we get we get boxed into a very small amount. Um, when we do things that we know aren't going to be, we're not competing with low, um, captions, we're not competing with social, we use up that whole bottom area. So it just depends on what we're... And then the other thing we have to look at is also safe area. So now it, it, we used to have action safe... Um, so action safe is 10% of the screen. So if you think about it, um, you know, what we've had in the past is we consider, you know, action safe is kind of, you know, this, this portion of the screen and we, you know, we, we want, want the graphics to go. And then we would typically, we used to say title safe was 20%. So it would sit inside, excuse my non straight lines, but it would sit inside that. So a lot of times we had guides that way. And so we'd say all the graphics have to sit. That was because we were going to tubes and things were getting cut off and everything else. We, I don't know how much, I know for, for us, um, we worry about it because I have some projection systems that we have to kind of protect the bottom of it to make sure that doesn't get cut off. But you know, for a lot of social stuff, we go edge to edge because it doesn't matter anymore. Like in, and for broadcast, we see a lot more, much more aggressive views. I don't know if Alex sees that as much, but we, we see a much more aggressive, you know, going out to the edge than we saw in the old days. Go ahead, Alex. So, yeah, the safe area would be, um, it's title and action are now the same, or we don't really have action safe. It's just title safe. And that's usually 10% across the width and 10% the height. Yeah. So it's 5% from the top and 5 from the bottom. So if it's uh, 1080 pixels high, it's only uh, 50, uh, 1080 divided by well, I did two fifty four pixels from the top and fifty four pixels from the bottom is in right. terms of the safe area. I mean, my joke answer to the question: What would you put in the space as little as possible? Yeah. Um, if you want to, you, the the trick is not to put anything in outside that area. But if we're talking about, let's see, if I get my, if we're talking the text being here, um, it is quite good for lower thirds to be uh, sorry name people's names and because uh, they can be up there for a while they can come and go and they're not really affected by uh titles um in, in terms of sorry uh narrative titles and stuff like that so it's 
it used to be that you would try and get as much as possible on the screen at once but sometimes what you might want to do is take it all away because you're confident about the actual content of what of what the person is saying um so yeah as little as possible is my answer and the one thing you do have to pay attention to is what format you're doing it to so again we've worked with some folks that when they're going live to let's you know if they're going live to let's say um uh tiktok and they want to put some graphics into what they're doing. Most people don't. Most people just turn TikTok on and they're like, okay, we're there. But there are some cases where we might want to add some graphics. You have to pay attention to where all the, what, what, what is the debris that your platform is adding to your frame. And so you pay attention to like where you, know, you have to, and it changes every week. So, you know, we used to have to, you know, like, oh, we're doing this next week. And we would, that's the earliest we would start thinking about where it needed to be because, you know, they, they move that stuff around all the, all the time and, it's, and none of them are the same. Um, next question. Next one in from Robert Linkrum from Belmont Shore, California. Long ago, an editor mentioned that the text becomes more readable if the drop shadow is prior to a letter on the left. At the time, I noticed that print ads did do this also. Please discuss. Go ahead, Alex. I think this is an old spouse's tale, um, to use a slightly newer way of saying it. Not in, in practice, no. Um, of course, if you have to have shadows, that obviously does remind me of the 1980s in terms of TV graphics and everything having a drop shadow. Um, but in practice, what people are doing is putting areas of color below type and then all with semi-transparent so that you don't rely so much on the drop shadow. Although recent graphic toolkits that have been used for social um, in the UK, they would actually have uh, just quite subtle shadows. But I think you're, what you're really doing is you are actually having to do contrast. You should do a contrast test of your type color on top of your video. And there are some technical ways of doing that as well. And it really is to do with um, whole areas behind type and not necessarily the direction in which the, uh, the shadow is going to go, I'm afraid. So uh, no, is in my opinion. Yeah, and, and the really the the high end hardware ones, and I just was looking at a software one that does this, will actually blur the layer below it while it's coming out, and it was like, <laughs> you know, like it just really looks nice. It's just that it's it's an extra processing loop, and so we don't see that in hardware very often. But there's some high end hardware and some software that'll do it. So as that thing rolls out, it's actually blurring what's behind it, makes it, making it a lot more readable, and, so, and blurring it and darkening it as it comes out, um, which is really beautiful. It's just that it's complex to do that without any any delay what were you gonna say alex but in the case of video um you can in the case of final cut pro lower thirds they can process the video that they're on top of that's not a problem yeah if you're doing it in post it's not a problem at yeah. all i'm talking about live but sure. yeah and, and i think that that looks i don't know if you if you've done that very much alex but i find that to be very pleasing you know to blur that background a little bit yeah, the trick is so that people don't even realize you're doing it. Because uh, yeah. instead of it being like, oh, it's all tending to frosted just, glass. Just a little. Yeah, just enough, enough so that you've got more less contrast. Because essentially what you need for type is uh, the type has to have the contrast, not the thing on top of it. Yeah, good, Bill. Exactly that. I remember when I came out of print and all the design rules for print and moved into video, it was suddenly, you know, oh, I'm using white type because it's a dark shot, but then the camera pans to the right and the shot becomes a light shot and you can't read anything. And so you're constantly trying to figure out what can I do to give my viewers' eyes a chance, the best chance possible to see the words and pick up the content. And sometimes that's a, a you know, like a drop cap, a little 
little piece of color or something like that where their eye should start and let them read from there. Sometimes it is taking an entire shot behind type and lowering the luminance values of it by 20% so that all the type that you've done in a bright thing stands out over the whole scene. Now, sometimes that's possible. Sometimes they don't want to mess with the shot. But these are all pieces of the puzzle to try to help your audience be able to read comfortably. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's all about how it keys over the uh, what's uh, in front of it or what it's covering over. And uh, in the old days, uh, that offset, not really a shadow as much as it's an offset black. If you had white type, it was sort of an offset black version of the same type uh, to allow it to see okay on the left side. It's all about readability. Um, nowadays, uh, yeah, a lot of shadows getting used, uh, some better than others. Um, I sometimes use a, uh, um, a black glow. Uh, over top of the type, if it's having a hard time reading over top of the uh, the image that's there, that'll work well too. But it does mess with the aliasing sometimes. Good, Twimo. Oh, okay. oh um, um, yeah, I, I find myself quite often. I have three sort of like backdrops that I design over. So I have a mid gray one, a black one, and a white one, and I try and I try out my test on all of them, and. If the design style dictates that you shouldn't have any boxes behind your text, I quite often find myself adding a little blur, blurry shadow onto it. It is so subtle that you really cannot see it over a normal image, but over a white, like if you have a white type on on a you know white sky or snowy background, you will need to have something in there, and a very very soft subtle you know five percent shadow will do the trick. Next question. Next one in from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, everyone. What would the panel say is their top three favorite fonts for lower thirds? And also, what is your preferred font size? I go ahead, Mitchell. Um, my, my favorite, Futura, because it comes in different family sizes. Uh, Myriad, if you're trying to use uh, Windows uh, nomenclature. And the old stone, sans serif, was uh, one of my favorites. As far as sizes, it's always small enough to be readable, but not too large to be horsey. I go ahead, uh, Bill. Yeah, and, and you know, you learn pretty early. Typefaces are entire families, and they come in a variety of weights. And you get down to the individual font, which is one weight and one treatment of one of those typeface families. And so the language is a process. I look for... A, a pretty robust family that has a variety of different fonts within that family, particularly condensed and expanded and things like that, that a type designer has gone in rather than me just taking something that was designed to be, a, a, you know, 40 pixels wide and trying to make it 32 so it fits in things and compressing all the letters. I like to find a condensed version that the type designer has actually made readable in that compressed thing. So a lot of little subtleties like that. Good, Jason. Um, I, for one, adore the Avenir families. I just, I, I just love them. I'm a big, I use a lot of Avenir. Um, go ahead, Tuomo. Any font which has a nice license so I can share those font files with my productions. <laughs> there you go. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, that, that, that works for me. Nice, big, bright, uh, especially because uh, lower thirds are going to get really small, uh, nice, bright, and, and no no frills. And I've also been doing a lot of research lately about uh, fonts that uh, help with, like, dyslexia and uh, being able to read uh, uh, the uh, thirds and stuff like that. So I'm looking at fonts like that. I've got a couple, but I don't have the names offhand. Good, Courtney. 
Uh, Helvetica. I stay away from Helvetica Narrow with the, any of the narrower fonts because the I's and the L's can kind of run together. The kerning gets out of hand and uh, definition drops then if in a narrow font. You can put more on the screen, but uh, stay away from those. Mono. And uh, interesting, uh, the Helvetica Ultra is the de facto motion picture film font. There you go. Yeah, and um, Gotham is really nice as well. Not easily licensable, but, but a nice looking font. Um, next question. Next question coming in from Douglas Carmichael. How do you embed a custom font into an HTML5-based graphics engine like SPX? Tuomo. Yeah, so basically uh, SPX templates are uh, mini websites. So uh, you will embed the font exactly the same way as you do while doing web pages. So you have a font file and you link that font file into your uh, style sheet. So there's a, there's a syntax how to do it. And you can you can embed any font that your computer can read and you can you can ship that font with the, with your template as long as you have the license to do so. Uh, yeah, Mitchell. Could you uh, also link to like a Google font and it because they have an unlimited number of fonts available. Right, you can, uh, but the way we do these these templates is that they will need to work uh, in, a, in an environment which doesn't have an internet connection. So that's why we, we use Google Fonts quite a, lo quite a lot, but we actually download those locally and not use the Google uh, font hosting. Go ahead, Alex. And when it comes to that, I'm actually answering the previous question, but it's quite good that Noto from Google Fonts is pretty good because uh, for BBC News Channel, we had to make it work in Chinese and Japanese and in, in lots of different script systems. Um, so Noto is very good for that. It's actually a very, looks good in English and sorry, Roman systems. Um, but yes, in, in practice, we download them all and then have them built into the installer each time so that people can install it onto their machines so that they can use it. So yeah, Noto from uh, family because it's available in all the languages of the world. Next question. Eduardo Augustine from Panama City, Panama. Considering the new tools, new tools available like SPX graphics, do you still recommend key fill technique and how do you do so? Well, we still need it because we're we're still running hardware. So, um, so if we're using hardware uh, hardware input, we still need a um, some way to uh, get those into our hardware switchers. And there's still a lot of people out there using hardware. I know that you think that everybody's using software, but they're not. So, um, so anyway, so uh, so to get the key fill, we use Casper CG, um, and then tie that in with SPX. So it is Casper will deliver that that key fill out, and it's free. I think. I mean, you need a piece of hardware to to run it, but but you can otherwise use it there. And, and Caspar is the is the one that I think a lot of people use, especially if they're using SPX, uh, if they need key fill. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, uh, what is WYSIWYG editor works best to create templates for SPX? Uh, Tuomo, do you, have, do you have any recommendations for a WYSIWYG? Uh, that's a difficult question always, uh, because there really aren't any uh, generic HTML authoring tools, which will allow you to design your template in a way that you would design in Photoshop or After Effects, and then just export it out as an HTML file, which will be able to be uh, played out using SPX or other tools. There is one called Loopic.io. I will I will type it in here. Uh, so that is something which I, I I think is the best tool at the moment to do so. But I and there's this one called uh, Hype uh, on a Mac. So these, these two things I, I know for a fact that exists. Next question. 
Kyle Hammond from Chicago, Illinois. How do tickers relate to and affect lower thirds, if at all? Good, Bill. Well, they certainly can. I've seen one network uh, with permission during a breaking news about grab another network's signal, and you've got all sorts of type conflicts at the bottom. Who's using what portion of what for their lower thirds, for their crawls, for their bugs? And I can't tell you the number of times I've seen one bug on top of another bug just because those coordination things don't, don't get settled. I don't think I've ever seen a style sheet that's universal across television that says if you're going to do a crawl, it should be in this space. Everybody tries to figure out how to get along with everybody, but it's sometimes not easy. Uh, Go ahead, Tuomo. In broadcast, they they quite often talk about a concept called uh, transition logic. So on my screen here, you can see see my name there. And now when when a sort of like a ticker comes on there, the name strap moves up. So th- those layers are linked together. And this is a very important concept when, when designing these things, that how how should these layers interact with, e- with each other? And it's super, super difficult often to, to uh, produce these graphics, which actually does that. Courtney? Yeah, with the horizontal ticker, you have to also pay attention to frame rate of the video that you're using and the speed and size of the font, because otherwise you will see judder as the type moves horizontally. If the horizontal refresh rate is different, uh, it'll get confusing. So you have to choose a slow enough rate on the scroll for the ticker to not look like it's jumpy or uh, uneven or it creates scrolling artifacts. So it has to be synchronized. Uh, the scroll has to be synchronized with the frame rate of the particular media that you're overlaying. Go ahead, Alex. It's interesting that Tuomo showed a uh, ticker space and ticker information, but didn't use the more what was now considered slightly old-fashioned of type moving horizontally from the left to the right or the right to the left, depending on where you are in the world. Now it's a little space in which text is updated um, scrolling into place, then vanishing, and a new thing appearing, uh, a bit like the old closing credits on movies. Um, that's how the fashion just changed recently, certainly in Europe, uh, in terms of information not being a long, continuous scroll, but just information that appears one by, thing by thing, if you see what I mean. I, which I think is highly superior. It makes me much less stressed. Like, you know, it, like it pops up, waits, and then pops up another one and waits, and pops up another one and waits. It is so much nicer than the... Because the other thing is, is the problem that that Courtney pointed out was that the you see this, you actually see the frames oftentimes as it goes across. And so it's just, it's not a great, you know, it's not a smooth experience, you know. And so I think that, I think I'm glad that the fashion has become something better than what it was. Next question. Next question is for me, how about using 3D text and graphics? You definitely see that as you look at like the things that are, uh, and we had, for other reasons, we had VizRT on. VizRT is probably one of the leaders. VizRT and Chiron um, are the two that probably build the biggest engines for doing 3D graphics. If you're talking about live 3D graphics, of course, you can build build these lower thirds in, in 3D in a variety of tools. Um, motion has it just built in. You know, so the motion engine just does, you know, um, your, your um, you can do 3D text there. Um, so there's a lot of... Uh, um, I feel like it's too much. Like, like I, I'll be on it for lower thirds. Um, I think that you can use th- uh, 3D graphics here and there, and I, I love playing with them. We have them for the countdown clock, and we I, I love using 3D graphics for countdown clocks because it's big and it feels real, and, you know, all this other stuff. But I don't, I don't, 
I don't particularly like it for uh, lower thirds. I think it's I think it's very hard to make it because I think we're now moving away from readability and you're getting into a form over function problem. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Alex. Um, when somebody says 3D graphics, I picture two helmets bashing into each other in the middle of the frame, effectively saying well, this team is going to be playing this team, which is okay. But if we're talking about lower thirds and content that is going to be providing lots of information, then it's hard. There's not much space for the 3Dness of 3D type, I would say. And I will say that again, if you watch Sunday night football or Thursday night football specifically in in the United States, you'll see a very elegant way of using a lot of 3D inside of those spaces. Um, but it's it it's a lot of work, you know, to get the you know to get 3D to work. It is. You're putting a huge amount of effort into it. These are multi-million-dollar graphics packages um, that are, you know, that take a year <laughs> to put together. Um, you know, and it's an incredible amount of resources um, to do that and to do it well and do it and constantly have changing data. They have, they have to think of everything, like every single thing that you could possibly put into that. And it's uh, we're going to see if we can get some of those folks on, but it's 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 a really um, it's a crazy crazy setup. Yeah. Next question. Alex 4D Gallner from London, UK, and also here on our panel. Tuomo, can you talk about how After Effects can create graphics that work on the web that can also be incorporated in SPX designs? Good yeah, problem. so traditionally graphics are are rendered out from After Effects as as pixels. So you you create a video file. Uh, now there is a technique called Lotti animations. Uh, which uh, is basically that you create your animations in After Effects using vector shapes, so paths, text, uh, these kind of things. You can animate them, you can you can you can move them around, but in the end you are you are going to create basically a text file which describes that animation. It's not pixels, it is not pre-rendered video, it is piece of data, and that, then you can. You can take that data and you can you can incorporate that into HTML-based templates, and the templates template will know how to play back that animation. It has some limitations, so you cannot have blurs and some kind of other effects. So all the filters in After Effects are not supported, but a, a huge amount of those are. And 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 another benefit of it is that it will it will play back at your device's uh, refresh rate. So you don't define time as frames, you define time as time. So like if you define time, which is one second and, and your thing moves across in one second on a film, it will do that using 24 individual pictures. But this this vector animation is actually on a browser, it is rendering 60 uh, frames a second. So it looks way, way smoother. Another benefit is that since it is a vector based, you can scale it up as huge as you want and it's always gonna be super crisp. It's a very nice technique. That's great. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asked, how do you push live content into SPX? Go to him. Push is a key word there. So you will need to have some kind of a process which which can trigger a function within uh, SPX. SPX has an API to do that. So if your backend system, like we are using, using the, the system that you are using in this show, it is triggering a function within SPX template. So basically it just sends us out a, a command that update name of the person on screen and it will receive that data and it will update the graphic on screen. So API. Good, Mitchell. Is it also possible to consume data from an XML file or a JSON file, provided it's sandboxed properly? Yes, that is absolutely possible. The 
thing there is when you are when we are talking about logic, it, it it requires two things. You will need to have a process, and you will need to trigger to to execute that process. So you will you will need to uh, uh, come up with a solution that where is your trigger coming from? It the trigger might be a timed process. So so a timer will trigger that function every second. So then it it may. Uh, get the data from your Excel sheet or XML file, JSON file, API once a second and update that on screen. And the free, uh, the refresh rate can, can go up to 50 times a second when we are talking about SPX. Well, it's a good hour. It's good, uh, good, uh, good little chat about uh, graphics on lower thirds. I think we'll, we'll keep on coming back to these kind of subjects. And I think we should do something about the Lottie animations and maybe do a second hour on that and, and really talk about how that, that actually works. That'd be a fun, fun second hour to, to dig into. So stay tuned for more of that. Um, thanks to the panelists, of course, for everyone everyone uh, coming here. Our special guest, Alex and Tuomo, and all of the panelists uh, for the first and second hour uh, and having uh, and being able to uh, keep this conversation and holding that space for us. So we really appreciate all of your contribution. Can't do it without you. And thanks to the um, to the uh, the producers asking all these questions. We can't do this without you either because it gets to be a really short show. Like sometimes we get into the show and, and I'm like, oh, there's only a couple questions. This might be a short hour. And then the, the, the producers start thinking and they start throwing questions in. So we really appreciate your input there. And thanks to the incredible team uh, that is developing the software on the back end that is, um, that is managing what we're going to do every day and that is also executing all of these uh, shows every single day, seven days a week. We appreciate your contribution. Um, we traveled, drum roll please, as I move things around here, uh, 46,000 miles. Yeah, uh, 46,000 miles, um, and that is uh, 74,000 kilometers, and that's 366 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. <laughs> 